Proverbs chapter 18. And this is a timely passage. Graduates, this is for you. I don't normally look for a target audience. In fact, I didn't in this study. And yet, the words coming out of here and what the Lord has to say to you at this point in your life, at this juncture, if you will, is pretty stunning. And so I want to highly encourage you. This is for all of us, but especially those of you graduating high school and where you're at at this pivotal point in life. These words are huge. I found myself through this week thinking, I wish I'd heard these back then. I wish someone had taken me and set me aside and just spoken literally these ten verses out of Proverbs chapter 18. Because they speak volumes about the truth. And about how to stand in the truth and to walk in the truth. So let's, let's get into this. I want to read these ten verses. We'll pray. And we have some things to talk about. Proverbs 18, verse 1. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. When a wicked man comes, contempt also comes. With dishonor comes scorn. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. To show partiality to the wicked is not good, nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. A fool's lips bring strife, and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels that go down into the innermost parts of the body. He also who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Yahweh, Adonai, Yeshua, El Shaddai, Lord Jesus, Spirit of the living Christ, we pray to You, we bow before You, and we recognize You as the way, the truth, and the life. We recognize, Jesus, that You are the one true great authority. We recognize that in You is all wisdom and all truth and all knowledge and that we truly find this in You, Lord. And I pray, Father, again for our graduates as well as for the rest of us, Father, speak truth into our hearts this morning. Guard us and guide us with the truth. And lift us up as faithful people. In Jesus' name, Amen. (laughs) Amen. You may be aware that the university system in our country was founded not only on Christian principles, but was founded to teach the truth of Jesus Christ. And if you go back to true history, not changed history, not altered history, like so much history that's taught today, but if you go back and look at what really happened 200 years ago in this country, schools like Harvard and Yale and Princeton, those Ivy League colleges of today, began as seminaries. They began to teach the truth of Jesus Christ. They had classes in Hebrew and classical Greek. Why? So that Scripture could be understood. The Bible was taught as the highest form of education. In fact, there is your higher education. To go beyond just the educating of normal life into the education of the Word of God. And this was taught early on and it was very much the substance of this country. These Ivy League schools, they began as places of biblical learning. 
Ironically, several of these same universities still have mottos carved in stone that compromise, ignore, undermine, or flat out deny the truth of the gospel of Jesus by the very teaching that's going on inside those hallowed halls. And it's pretty stunning to note to see how far this country has gone in 200 years. I, I want to give you a sample of university mottos. Okay, these are, I'll give you the, the Latin, and then I'll give you the translation, and no judging my Latin because I am not a Catholic. Okay, so I don't know Latin. I'll try and speak this the best I can. The University of California, the motto for the University of California, Fiat Lux. Fiat Lux, which means let there be light. University of California takes the first word spoken by God in Scripture as their motto. University of Washington does too. They translate it, or they speak it in the Latin. It's lux sit, but it's the same thing, let there be light. Columbia University, in lumine luo vidimimus lumen. Gesundheit. <laughs> Columbia University, the motto is, in thy light, we see light. Dartmouth University, Vox Clementis in Deserto, a voice crying in the wilderness. DePaul University, I'm not even going to try. I'll just tell you the translation in English. I will show you the way of wisdom. George Washington University, Deus Nobis Fiducia, in God our trust. Harvard, Veritas, Truth. Just a one-word motto, Veritas. University of Pennsylvania, I think, is an interesting one. Legus sin moribus vane, which means laws without morals are useless. Absolutely true. Princeton University, de sub numin viget, under God's power she flourishes. Yale University, lux et veritas, or veritas, light and truth, light and and truth. Evergreen State College in Olympia. Omnia ex terris, which means let it all hang out. <laughs> I kid you not. That is what it means. They use the Latin. I'm like, I don't think I've ever seen Latin on a surfboard. I don't know where this is coming from. But at least they're honest about the kind of education you're going to get there. And if you went to Evergreen State College, my condolences. Now, before we get going, I need to say one thing. I want to be very clear about this. I am a great believer in higher education, just not the way I used to be. A few things have changed over the years for me and my understanding. A so-called higher education, graduates, listen to this, a so-called higher education that either compromises, ignores, undermines, or denies the source of all wisdom, Jesus Christ, is no education at all. If it compromises Jesus, ignores Jesus, denies Jesus, then it's not higher education, it's the lowest form of foolishness. And I encourage you all, because I know some of our grads are going to go into secular colleges, some will go to Christian colleges, and there are challenges in both arenas. You know, in the secular college, at least you know where you stand. In the Christian college, there may be good intentions, but there is a compromise going on there that is stunning, frightening. And in either case, if Jesus is undermined, if the truth of Jesus is compromised, it's not higher education. 
Wednesday night we ran across a verse in chapter 19, verse 27, if you look over there, that's difficult to translate because it could be translated one of two ways. Let me read it to you both ways. Proverbs 19.27 says, Cease listening, my son, to discipline, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. That's the New American Standard translation. The King James Version translates it differently, and it's also equally true. Cease, my son, my son, to hear the instruction that causes to err from words of knowledge. In other words, the New American Standard translates it, don't stop listening to the truth. Don't stop listening to words of knowledge. But the King James says, stop listening to words that cause you to cease from knowledge. Don't listen to things that cause you to err or sin. Both are true. I think about Paul back in his day, and he labored, even back 2,000 years ago, with concern over the worldly constraints that were already set up against the wisdom of Jesus Christ. And Paul said to the church in Colossae, Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding and a true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Get that. Make sure you, you, you hold on to that fact. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There is no wisdom, no knowledge that doesn't come from Jesus Christ. He has it all. And I share Paul's concern greater now in my life than I ever have. Partially, I'm sure, because I have two kids facing a Laodicean society. You know, Laodicea, the, the lukewarm church in the book of Revelation. And that's our society, and that's our, it tends to be our Christian colleges and universities around. Just kind of this namby-pamby approach to Scripture and the truth. This, this broad-mindedness that, that, that concerns me. Oh, you don't think we should be broad-minded? No, I think, actually, I think we should be narrow-minded people. Because narrow is the way, Jesus said. Narrow is the path to salvation. And those who find it are few. I don't mean being narrow-minded like close-minded and dumb, okay? But we, we have a challenge before us. I see our kids... I see our children coming through the bridge now. We've been here long enough to see you know, kids raised up and, and heading out many times. And I watch them going off to secular campuses and Christian campuses. And I have now seen what has happened many times to many kids. And it really concerns me. Because the teaching going on there, there is an undermining of truth that's happening all around us, gang. I see our kids heading out into the murky waters of the world. And I need you all to know, graduates, there is nothing murky about Jesus. There's nothing murky about Him. He is always clear. He is always understandable. He is always true. You can count on Him. If you have professors, if you have friends, if you have people around you saying all manner of weird things, you're trying to figure out, what do I believe? What do I believe? Man, hang on to Jesus. Because Jesus is always true. And He is always knowledge and He is always wisdom. And if you cling to Him, you're going to make it through the next season of your life. The Bible tells us the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus, John 1.14. 
John 1.17 For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. See that? Grace and truth. The perfect balance. Grace, compassion, love, and truth, righteousness, absolutes. He's both. Jesus said, this is the judgment, John chapter 3, verse 19, that the light has come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. It's Yale's lux et veritas, light and truth. Light and truth is Jesus. You're not going to find light and truth outside of Jesus Christ. You're going to find confusion and loss and disappointment and sorrow. Darkness, but not light and truth. Jesus said in John 14.6, I am the truth. And you know, I love that about Jesus. He left us no other option. Jesus didn't say, I'm part of the truth. He didn't say, I'm a way to the Father. He didn't say, I have life and so can you if you act like me. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. It's me. Be certain about that. If you choose to say, I don't really want the Christian thing, but I think Jesus is cool, He doesn't leave you the option. You either receive Him and accept Him and follow Him as Lord and Savior or reject Him outright because He's a lunatic or a liar because He absolutely claimed it is all about me. That's what freaked out the Jewish people. That's why they crucified Him. Because He kept saying it's all about me. And they said, you're making yourself equal to God. And He did not deny it. I am the truth. Even the uneducated fisherman from Galilee, Peter, understood this. When everybody was leaving Jesus because he spoke some hard things, some difficult truths, Peter said in John 6.68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And he was right on. Now all that said, We're going to take a different approach to our study this morning in Proverbs. We've been taking one proverb a week and just digging in and looking at one on Sunday mornings. We're going to look at ten. All ten of these, the first ten verses of chapter 18, because as I read through this over the last week or so, reading through it, looking at it, I thought, wow, this this is like the perfect teaching for graduates. This is the perfect teaching for our students. It's the perfect teaching, actually, for anyone who has any concern for walking and living in the truth. And we're going to consider something this morning, something that I saw arise in these Scriptures, and that's two towers. Two towers. The two towers are, number one, the strong tower of the name of the Lord. Look at verse 10. The the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Some of our grads are going on to college, secular and and some Christian. Some are going right to work. Others are planning mission work. Some interesting things are before them. Graduates, wherever you go, remember this. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. And it really doesn't matter how tough life gets, you can always run to the strong tower of the name of the Lord. We'll come back to that. Because there's another tower I want you to see this morning. It's a tower that appears beautiful, it's thought-provoking, and though it's man-made, it boasts intellectualism and wisdom, and it is the ivory tower of academia. Let's read, verse 1. He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. 
It's been said, a fool has a closed mind and an open mouth. He opens his mouth to impress and to influence, but the fool closes his mind to any truth that doesn't fit his paradigm. I've been trained in this uh, scholastic paradigm, or, or this philosophy, or this set of principles, and this is what I believe, and if you counter that, you must be wrong. There is a danger, my friends, to isolating yourself to your own thoughts or assumptions, or even that of your own community, unless... Unless that community is grounded in the Word of God. A community that's grounded in the Word of God is a community of immense power. And I'm not just talking about, ooh, they're powerful because you're strong weightlifting people. No. I'm talking about a power that I had not even realized that the Lord has done through, is doing through the church. This is absolutely mind boggling. Jesus said this, John 8.31, If you continue in My Word, you are truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That's amazing. The truth will make you free. You've seen it that on, on college campuses. You've seen it on high school campuses, on seats of learning. The truth shall set you free. And it's completely taken out of context. People talk about the truth as though it's this kind of vague thing out there. Just you're going and enter into the realm of truth, you know, and somehow you'll be set free by by just knowledge. Hey, knowledge for knowledge's sake is not freeing. In fact, it binds you up. It exhausts you. Solomon says, of much learning there is great weariness. But the truth, the real truth, listen again, Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. People trying to find the truth outside of or away from or apart from God's Word are not going to be set free. It's if you continue in My Word. And here's the thing. God has chosen the church to be a people who are in His Word. A truth that many churches are forgetting today. And it concerns me greatly. Churches turning away from or watering down or ignoring the Word of God. And you know this is a concern of mine. I haven't hidden that feeling or that, that concern. But God chose the church, led by His Holy Spirit, to be the vehicle for the delivery of His Word to this world. But listen, not just to this world. And this is the stunning truth. You want a mind bender? The wisdom of the Word of God that we as a people have been called to share is not just for planet Earth. Okay, Rick. Where are you going? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That is so cool. That means as we live out and walk out the word of truth, the heavenly rulers are learning something. Oh, not God, but principalities and spirits in the heavenly places, in the heavenly realms, through the church are learning of this vast, amazing, wonderful truth of Jesus Christ that He is all wisdom and knowledge. But if the, if the church is not teaching the Word, if we are not a people who are grounded in the Word of God, how, how then are we supposed to fulfill this calling, this mission? 
a fool may open his mind, or actually may open his mouth and close his mind. A fool may do that, but you cannot stop the advance of the Word of God. God will do it. In fact, we're told the Word of God is not imprisoned. 2 Timothy 2.9 We're told in Psalm 19, the heavens are declaring of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. But in this foolish, rebellious, spouting world, there is great resistance to true knowledge. Look at verse 3. When a wicked man comes, contempt also comes. Note that. And with dishonor comes scorn. Now, speaking of the ivory tower of academia, I have seen and heard this particular proverb played out many, many times by professors who would seek to destabilize Christian faith, close minds and hearts to the will and the wisdom of God. Listen to the verse again. When a wicked man comes, contempt also comes, and with dishonor comes scorn. And this explains something to me. Now again, understand, I was trained in both Christian and secular university settings. My undergrad was in a Christian school. My graduate work was in Cal State Fullerton University in Southern California. My oldest kids are pursuing college degrees as well. And I hope my younger ones will. But I don't want them to go in untrained, unprepared, or unguarded. I want them to know what they're walking into and be ready to answer. Students, listen. And those of you who are even in college right now, listen. Just because some older, seemingly wiser, seemingly learned professor appears to have the answers, if those answers undermine Jesus and the Word of God, it is foolishness. Something's wrong. They are not teaching the truth. And you can be certain of that. And it's amazing. Note the revealing progression in this proverb. Wickedness leads to contempt, leads to dishonor, leads to scorn. So when you see that learned, highly educated man with many, many letters after his name standing up before you and saying certain things and scornful or mocking of Christianity and the Bible, there's a root to that. There's a root from which that scorn is derived. Scorn coming from dishonor, coming from contempt, which is born out of wickedness. I think it would be amazing if a college student, if the professor was just ripping on Christianity, you know, just going after it, tearing it down, trying to undermine, and a student would raise their hand and say, I, I just have one question. What's, what's uh, going on in your sin life? Because you know what the Bible tells us? The scorn against Christianity comes directly from sin. It comes out of wickedness. It comes from someone who is in their life sinful, and because of that, they're going to scorn what highlights that very problem in their life. And that's what the proverb is telling us. Christian students can find themselves backed into corners by the confusion of a professor's uber-intellectual questions. The real question, the root question should be, why is this professor so anti-Jesus? Why is he so anti-biblical? Why is there so much scorn for the truth. It's because when wicked man comes, contempt comes also. Now, I don't just mean to pick on professors because in this whole setting, it could be anyone. It could be a roommate. It could be a friend. It could be a co-worker. 
But here's the thing. The Bible says the root of all scorn is self-justifying wickedness. That's where it is. Keep your finger there and flip over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Paul addresses this directly. Verse 18. Watch this. For the wrath of God, yes, there is a wrath of God. I know there are churches that would teach otherwise. I was in one yesterday. For the wrath of God, I wasn't in there worshiping. I was there for a memorial service, and I won't get into it. But, uh, there were aspects of the, I'll tell you this much. There were aspects of the memorial that were precious. Uh, but it was a very interesting setting that began with a prayer to our Father, Mother, God. I was sitting there and I just... Oh, 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 oh! I, I, I couldn't believe what I heard. And then I, I had to get up to speak later. But you know what? Gary Kramer just nailed it. Gary got up there at his mother-in-law's memorial service and before reading the 23rd Psalm, he talked about how the Psalm was all about the benefits of people who follow Jesus Christ. And I went, yes! Go Gary! I, at that point, I didn't want to raise my hand. I want to stand up and go, Gary, Gary, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one's... No. <laughs> I'll have more to say about that in a minute. Anyway, so, so Paul, Paul is writing about this, this attitude, this scorn. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of, listen, of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor give thanks, but they became futile in their own speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Watch this. Professing to be wise, they became fools. What is Paul saying? First off, everybody knows there's a God. Everybody knows. And you might be sitting here, perhaps you came as a friend this morning or you're visiting the church for whatever reason. There may be someone sitting here this morning, I don't know, who's saying, yeah, I don't really believe in God. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You know. You know that you know. We know it by creation, Paul says. If you will look around honestly at creation, you cannot deny the hand of intelligent design in creation around us. You can't deny that unless you're lying to yourself or being deceptive to yourself. So we know it by creation, but we also know it by conscience. What are you talking about? Atheists will often say, I can't believe in a God who would allow so much injustice. The very first question to respond to that is, where did you get the idea of justice? How did you come up with justice and injustice on your own? Did you think of that? Because the animals don't. You know, when was the last time you saw a tiger weeping over his last prey? I wish I didn't have to do this. I'm so sorry, cute buddy. I'm just so sorry. I just feel terrible. All the guilt, the shame. You don't see this kind of thing. 
Because the animal kingdom doesn't have a clue. But humanity, gang, we have this conscience. We have this sense of right and wrong. C.S. Lewis asked the question, where does that come from? God has put that in us, given us a conscience of truth and deception of lies, of, of right versus wrong, of good versus evil, of justice versus injustice. And C.S. Lewis says, a man does not call a line straight unless he has some idea of a crooked line. You can't call out injustice. You can't shake a fist at a God, that, you know, which is ironic. You don't believe in God, but you say you're angry with Him. You can't deny a God because of injustice in the world because if you believe in injustice, then you're already into the realm of conscience and that is not human originated. That's something that God has given us. Creation in conscience. And be it on the college campus or in the halls of government or in the workplace or the home or even the church, gang, when we suppress truth, we're doing it to justify wickedness. The suppression of truth is to justify my sin. Or to ignore the truth is to allow myself to walk in my sin without having to think it through or feel it through. The truth is, this is not an intellectual debate. It is a moral issue. And what's lost on so many of our campuses, Christian and non-Christian, is morality. No, we're going to keep morality out of this and just deal with the truth. You can't do that. Because if you're dealing with truth, you have to deal with morality. And once you step into the realm of morality, well, there's Jesus waiting to talk to you. Verse 4. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. This is a phenomenal proverb. What he's saying is our words come from the well of the heart. And imagine this. Imagine a deep cistern. Uh, I'm not talking about like brethren and cistern. I'm talking about like water tanks. A cistern is a tank for holding water. And if you go to Israel, you see those. By the way, did I mention there's room on the trip? If you'd like to go, I'd love for you to come with us. In Jerusalem, those of you who have gone before, you see them. Around the country, you see them. Cisterns, vast, carved out areas of rock that would hold water for long periods of time. And these cisterns were deep, and and it seems to be a lot of the commentators think that's kind of what he's talking about. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters, like a deep tank, a deep cistern for holding the water. And there's a a human proverb out there, you've probably heard, still waters run deep. And what that means is someone who's not super talkative might tend to be a pretty deep thinker. That's the idea behind that. But if the water is still for too long, if it's not bubbling, if it's not flowing, what happens to the water? It goes stagnant. And what we see here in so many lives and so many hearts is water that's deep but stagnant. And yet, what does he say? He says, the fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. A bubbling brook. No one's going to drink out of a cistern of stagnant water. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem and you can see some of these cisterns, they still have water in them even today. But who would drink this stuff? I mean, there's moss and mildew and scum floating on the water down there. And you're not going to take your water bottle. You remember this, Clark? You're not going to take your water bottle, stick it down in the water, go, hey, all right, I got some Jerusalem water. Or are you going to spend the rest of the trip with Montezuma? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. And those of you who hike, you know this. If the water's flowing, chances are it's drinkable. You know, if it's bubbling, if it's moving, if it's, if it's a, a dead area, stagnant, be careful. Don't drink that stuff. 
The well of wisdom is like that. A fountain bubbling up fresh. You remember what Jesus said? John 7.37, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, side note, you Bible students, listen closely to this. Jesus says, as the Scripture said, from His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus is quoting Scripture there. What Scripture? Hmm. You know, in the whole Bible, there's only two possibilities of what Jesus might be quoting or or at least referring to there. The first is in Isaiah 44, verse 3 which says, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out My Spirit on your offspring and My blessing on your descendants. That's one option. The other option is right here, Proverbs 18, verse 4. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. And the reason why this is a possibility is that word for bubbling in verse 4, it's the Hebrew word nabah, and it means flowing. Flowing water. Flowing water. And Jesus said, rivers of living water will flow from you. If, if you come to Me, if you have My Spirit, then you're going to have that wisdom just flowing. You want to be wise? Graduates, you want to be wise? Get in and stay in the flow of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And you will be wise. And your professors will be confounded. And I will be cheering you all the way. Verse 5. To show partiality to the wicked is not good. To thrust aside the righteous in judgment. It's also not good. i I got to address Christian universities now. Because the biggest concern right now is not only with our culture or our society, but it's a growing number of Christian schools and churches that are doing exactly what we're warned against in verse 5. Listen again. To show partiality to the wicked is not good. Nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. And in the name of of open-mindedness and broad-based tolerance for all manners of behaviors and lifestyles that the Lord disdains, the Bible says it's not good. Now, stay with me on this, because I know I could offend, but the Bible says to, to look out to certain communities of people or to certain lifestyle situations and just say, hey, you know, whatever. Everyone, come on in. It's all good. It's all good. It's universal. Everybody's going to end up saved anyway, so it's all good. We love you as you are. To step into that place, the Bible says, is not a good thing. And on the other hand, (laughs) just thrust aside the righteous in judgment. How often do we see that happening? If you are a Christian who tries to stand up and say, you know, I just don't believe that's right, what happens? You get judged. You get persecuted. You get thrust aside. You get told, that's you can't do that. You suddenly are in the camp of the Christian militants. How many saw that on the news this last week? Congresswoman who was in the, uh, the hearings for radical Islam and, and, uh, and militant Islam. And she brought up, she said, well, what about Christian militants? You know, those who won't allow a woman a right to choose. You know, what? Christian militants. Interesting. We're back to moral absolutes versus personal lifestyles. And there are moral absolutes. And there are colleges that are struggling with fact. Uh, you know, I, I, won't, I won't name Whitworth because I, you know, I, I, my daughter goes there. 
sorry, honey. <laughs> Whitworth's dealing right now with a challenging situation. They're trying to figure out where to go. Many Christian colleges have had the influence of homosexuality on the campus and having to deal with, do we hire homosexual professors at a Christian university? What do we do when that comes down the pike? And it's happening because more and more we have homosexual activist professors who are seeking employment at Christian universities. And when they don't get hired, they make a big stink about it and they go to court and say, it's all a big deal. And so right now, and Clark is on the board there, and I hope I'm not saying more than I should be saying. Is this okay? Okay, we're just going to tell the truth here. Clark's on the board there, and right now Whitworth's dealing with what do we do when this comes up? It hasn't, but what do we do when it does? How do we deal with this? How do we face this kind of thing? And Hannah knows, and we've talked about this on campus, it's a big discussion. How do we deal with the homosexual community when we know what the Bible has to say about homosexuality and the biblical absolutes? What do you do? And you know the old saying, if you're not a liberal when you're young, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative when you're old, you have no brain. Remember that? That's not a verse out of the Bible, so you can weigh that inside if you agree or not. But here's the question. Here's the question. Let's just deal with this right up front. Because even yesterday I was in a place at at the memorial service at the Center for Spiritual Living in Mount Vernon. The Center for Spiritual Living. And I went in there knowing, and Leslie called me. In fact, I I thank you so much for calling me to come and do that. But uh, she called me up and I was... She left a message saying, would you come speak at my mom's memorial service? And I was thinking, yeah, yeah, sure. It's at the Center for Spiritual Living. I went, the what? And so I I talked with her a bit about that and some of the things that they believe. And I Googled it and went online and found out more. And it's it's just kind of, you know, it's just pretty much universal anything goes kind of deal. And uh, when I talked to Leslie, she said, would you just come and speak the truth? And I said, I can do that. But not knowing exactly how it was going to come out, you know. And it was, it was good. God, God took care of it. But, I, you know, just being there in that place, and here's, here's the reason I mention that. There were some things said that were bogus. There's obviously a belief system that is very universal and, and lovey-dovey and out there and whatever. But, and I need to say this clearly, please hear my heart. Though a lot of truth is being kind of ignored, the love and the kindness and the compassion of these ladies, mostly they were ladies at this church, was pretty impressive. The fellowship, they obviously truly love each other and care about each other and want to embrace all people. And I sat there yesterday in this, in this quandary because on the one hand there's the truth of the Word of God and on the other hand there's this, this compassion and love and I'm thinking, but we're called to be loving too but not to compromise the truth. How do we do it? Because you know in the church today it swings. The pendulum is wide. There's the compassionate, super ultra compassionate arm that says anything goes, whatever your lifestyle is, we'll just love you through it and hey, no big deal. We're all going to end up there. And then there's the far other side, Westboro Baptist Church. That is harsh and condemning and brutal and frankly an embarrassment to the name of Christ in my opinion. Where, what do we do? Do we try and float up the middle? No, we don't. Here's the answer. Here's the answer. It's in Jesus. If you ever want to know, how do I walk out some aspect of life, go to Jesus and look at what He did. Consider Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. In answering the question, 
How do we stand firm on moral absolutes and remain compassionate and loving, offering grace to all people? How do we walk this this line? How do we do it? John chapter 4. I love this story because we're told at the beginning of the story that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, you know what? No Jew went through Samaria. And no spiritual Jew. You went around Samaria. You did not go through it because they were half-breed, half-Jew, half-other, and we have nothing to do with them. And the Jewish people would not go through Samaria. They always went around it. But the Bible tells us Jesus had to go to Samaria. So you're already seeing, getting a sense of Jesus was a little broader-minded than, than some in His day. But we're told at this point, He goes to Samaria, He sits down by a well, Jacob's well, in, in, in a place called Sychar, and He's tired, and it's high noon, it's probably pretty warm, and He's sitting there resting, the disciples go on, and we're told that there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Hey, give me a drink. For His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? Two strikes against her. She was a Samaritan, so no Jew in his right mind would be talking to her. And she was a woman, so no man in his right mind would be talking to her. And so she's asking this question. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Now note this, this woman is pretty brave. Because she's already recognized that as a Samaritan woman, she shouldn't even be in conversation with Jesus. And yet she's... <laughs> I think there's a little contention going on. Kind of a dripping kind of a contention. Referring to another proverb we saw recently. And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And I'm detecting a note of cynicism in her voice. I could be wrong, but I think we're talking a little bit cynical. You know, oh, if you got water like that, I wouldn't mind some of that. I wouldn't have to walk here every day at noon, carrying these jugs, filling them up, walking all the way back to town. Give me some of that. It sounds good. And Jesus said in verse 16, Go, call your husband and come here. And he knew exactly what he was doing. Watch this. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said, you've correctly said, I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you are now you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Jesus just opens up the door to her life right there. Jesus is offering living water. He's about to, to offer it to her in a wonderful way. In fact, He's about to tell this woman, the first person in His life, He's about to tell this woman, I'm the Messiah. It's me. He chooses her to reveal His messianic nature for the very first time. But before He does that, He calls out her lifestyle. 
gently, honestly. He has true intellectual and spiritual honesty and he says to her, you know, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. You've been through five divorces and now you're living with a guy. Jesus, why do you do this? I mean, if if we're not just reading it like a Bible story, but if you're there, present, in the situation, I I know I would have been like, oh boy, here we go. We're going to go to town and get food, Jesus. You just take care of this situation here. Because he calls her out. He calls her out. Why? Because, listen, because Jesus cares for her too much to let the situation pass into the halls of intellectual debate. He cares too much. He's about to offer the living water, but first, but first, he deals honestly and openly with her sin. He calls it as it is. You've had five divorces and you're living with the guy. You're in a lifestyle now that is depriving you. you. Your lifestyle is the reason you're thirsty. And he makes it very clear. He's right up front. And by the way, Jesus always, always, always did this. He always dealt with people's sin. You remember the other stories? They brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Matthew 9, verse 2. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. He deals with the sin first. And then he heals him. Gives strength back to his legs. Luke seven forty eight. Jesus said to the, to the sinful woman, He said, Your sins have been forgiven you. John 8, verse 11. You remember this story. The the woman caught in the act of adultery, thrown down there at the feet of Jesus in the courtyard. And Jesus, after everyone leaves, says, I do not condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Was Jesus harsh, intolerant, judgmental? No. He loved people too much to ignore the sin. He always dealt with with the sin, openly and honestly, but without condemnation. I don't condemn you, but go your your way and sin no more. Why does he do this? Because unless we recognize our sin, the discussion remains highbrow. What do you mean? It just stays in the head. You can talk about Jesus all you want, but unless you get down to the root of sin in our lives, it's just all mental ascent. It's all in your head. It never gets down to your heart. And Jesus always went straight for the heart. Even look at what the woman does. Verse 19, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain and you people say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Well, that's random. She immediately changes the subject. She tries to go back to philosophy and intellectual debate. And that's what we do. We try to ignore the truth. She wants to keep it philosophical. But listen... You and I, we will not drink from the bubbling brook if we deny our thirst. And that's why in dealing compassionately with people, you have to deal with sin too. We have to confront the sin in our lives because if we don't confront the sin, we will never see a need for forgiveness. If we don't confront the thirst, we will never seek the satiation that only comes through Jesus Christ. If we'll be honest about this, then salvation can happen. If not, dehydration to the point of death happens, and I'm talking about eternal death, the second death, and that's the real issue. Not does someone have the right to express their lifestyle however they want. Hey, you can do that for the short time you're on this earth, and then you're facing the second death. Or, or, you can deal with the sin and face eternal life with Jesus. 
The second death, what is that? It's the lake of fire. And the Bible is absolutely clear about it. There's no getting around it. Revelation 2.11, Revelation 20 verse 6, 20 verse 14, and 21 verse 8 all directly speak of the lake of fire, which is the second death, which is eternal, if you reject Jesus. I'm not making this up. I didn't write this. I don't want to be a judgmental person. I, again, sat in that church yesterday just thinking, you know, there's, there's great compassion and love here, but it's lacking in truth. I have sat in other churches where there's great truth, but it's lacking in love. And I just thought, oh, I just want to be like Jesus. Because He's grace and truth. Right? Grace and truth. And that's how we are called to walk and live. So, so students, back to you. Don't get sidetracked by intellectual debate. Don't let that take you off track. Get to the heart of the matter, which is a thirst that only Jesus can satisfy, the water of life. We're told in Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And you guys, you girls, have that power to offer life to those around you. Verse 6. We've got to move on. A fool's lips bring strife. And his mouth calls for blows. You know you're talking with a fool when your simple observations of truth cause them to get angry. Or to get violent. And I've dealt with that a few times. Where you're simply speaking the truth and you can see you know, the blood pressure rising. And it's like, okay, okay. In those situations, be careful because you may just be dealing with a fool. It's amazing how defensive people can immediately get when you step off the intellectual plane and into the reality plane of of sin and our need for salvation and talking about heaven and hell and and these true realities. Verse 7, a fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are the snare of his soul. And I remember being in college, my friends and I would sit around and we'd philosophize and I loved it because it made me feel so smart. You know? It made me feel so intellectual. And so higher than, and so wise, and so blah, blah, blah. You know what Solomon says? Ecclesiastes 10, verse 12. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his taking of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies his words. And not wanting to be a fool, let's just move right on to the next verse quickly. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. And you might say, oh, okay, that's dealing with gossip. It's more than that. And staying in the context of, of what we're seeing here, of the application in these verses, it's interesting that this fits right in with the rest. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. Whisperer. In the Hebrew is a word that is often translated talebearer, And so people think, oh, it's talking about gossip. But it's more. A whisperer, this word also means to express discontent in low tones. Your Christian faith is kind of flimsy, isn't it? It's not really grounded in scientific truth, is it? Did the Lord say to you that you couldn't eat of every tree of the garden? The words of a whisperer. And what happens oftentimes, especially in the college setting, is a professor who seems so learned and so wise will speak these words and students will just go, oh, yeah, yeah, that tastes good. Mmm, mmm, I'll have a little more dainty morsels until it gets down to the belly and starts to go sour. 
it's not just gossip. It's words that undermine truth, that are whispered, they're alluring, they sound tasty. They go down literally into the chambers of the belly. But they don't go down to enrich your life. They go down to spoil. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.16, Avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Anyone here have gangrene? You know how you know? It's the person who raises their arm but doesn't have a hand. (laughs) Because when you get gangrene in an aspect of your body, once the gangrene sets in, there's only one thing you can do. Amputate. Because it will continue to spread. Gangrene is when the tissue dies because the blood's not getting to it. I mean, that is what we talked about this last week, and there's a picture of the blood of Christ. When the blood of Christ doesn't get to me and wash me and cleanse me, I start to die. And Paul says, dainty words like this, words spoken, worldly and empty chatter will spread in you and start to cause you to die. Well, how do you know when dainty morsels are, are actual dangerous dining? How do you know to avoid these words that are whispered? Paul already said how. In 2 Timothy 2.15, right before this, he said, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And the reality is, if I am filling up on this word, then the dainty morsels are not going to seem so dainty. You're going to recognize the rot in them, even as they come along. That's why I pray, graduates, I hope these Bibles of yours are absolutely worn out, and not in a decade. I hope in the next year. I hope in the next two years that your Bible will be so used up and written in and highlighted and bent and used that that it's thrashed. I would love... I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Uh, I'm going to make a promise to you graduates. Come back and see me in five years. If your cover is falling off, I will pay for you to have a new leather cover put on your Bible. All right? My deal to you guys. Okay? And, and parents keep an eye on them because they don't want them going home and taking a hammer going, <laughs> you know. Out of use. Out of use. Be diligent to present yourself approved a workman to God who, who does not need to be ashamed. Accurately handling the word of truth. And the only way to accurately handle the word of truth is to handle the word of truth. If I'm filling up on the truth, these dainty morsels are not so enticing. If I'm surrounded by friends or professors or teachers or pastors... Or anybody who are speaking words into my life, the real question is, are they God's words? Or are they just the words of man? Verse 9. He also who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. In other words, in other words, someone who's not getting the job done, unfinished work is just as bad as a wrecking ball. I was joking around with Niccolo earlier. Niccolo built my house. And I said, you know, if Niccolo had left some major aspect of my house unfinished, you might as well just tear the whole thing down because eventually it's going to fall. And after first service, Niccolo came up and he said, you know, Pastor, I'm just not sure. I think we may have forgotten to put the rebar in the concrete of the foundation. He said, I don't know, but it's a possibility, you know. That foundation would crack, the house would come down, and you might as well just take a wrecking ball to it. And that's what he's saying. That he who is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Now that is a proverb about laziness. But listen, don't miss this. Unfinished work is like a wrecking ball. Unfinished work is destructive. Like, like questions without answers. Wow, if that doesn't define the whole idea of critical thinking that, that our students are taught in college. Questions without answers. 
And there's a philosophy in college study and teaching out there that says, pepper them with questions. Give them all kinds of questions. Don't give them answers. Let them work it out and deal with it and figure it out on their own. Don't give the answers. And that is absolute foolishness. The Bible is given to us as the foundation of truth, the solid, absolute truth before us. So that as we're asking questions, the answer is here. Ask a question, the answer is here. Ask a question, you get the point? But to ask question upon question upon question, to discuss deep, esoteric mysteries without any resolution. Well, we're not going to tell you the answer. You just think that through and see what you come to yourself. So I go into that deep well of the heart and I go, I don't know. I got nothing. It's deep. Nothing in there. But here, there are absolutes. Question, answer. Aren't you thankful that God didn't leave things unresolved for us? Yeah. I mean, how, how does the Bible end? With the revelation. The revelation of Jesus. The Bible's not in with a cliffhanger. And then Jesus and the apostles... To be continued. How would that have been for us? No picture of heaven. No picture of our future. No idea where we're going. No idea if if following Jesus is a good idea or not. Just good luck. Have a nice life. Revelation 22.16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Then verse 20 of the last chapter says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. I am coming. And John finishes the book writing, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. A solid ending, a firm ending, a resolution. But there is an end to all things. And Jesus Christ is coming back. And it ends with the grace of Jesus, and that's what we need. It's how we navigate the foolishness and scorn and partiality and whispering and questions of this life. Until He comes. Verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. And I love this. The word safe. Sagab in the Hebrew. Is literally set on high. That's your higher education. The tower that is the name of the Lord. The strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is set on high. God's name is not like so many platitudes and philosophies filling the halls of academia. The tower of the name of the Lord is a strong tower. His name is His nature. It is who He is. His compassionate, gracious, loving kindness, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. That is the Lord. And His name is the strong tower for us to run to. Psalm 9, verse 10, Those who know Your name will put their trust in You. For You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. Isaiah 50, verse 10, Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of His servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Oh, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. I want to read one final thing to you and we'll be done. I know I've gone a little long this morning, and part of it is, students, I'm I'm passionate for you. I again wish that someone had said some of these things to me when I graduated high school. Would have saved me a lot of heartache and confusion. Would have saved me a lot of having to refigure and relearn things. 
The name of the Lord is the strong tower. The name of the Lord is your higher education. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, you run to that tower. You stand with Jesus. You put your faith and your trust in Him and you base your life in the pattern of His life. And you will be saved. Charles Bridges in his commentary said the following. I'll read this to you. He said, Such is the name of the Lord. Not bare outward words operating as a charm, but His character, that by which He is known. Think of the sinner. As he becomes convicted of his evil condition, he trembles at the thought of eternal condemnation. He looks forward in all his terror. He looks backward in all his remorse. He looks inward in all his darkness. Until now, he had no idea about his need for salvation. His soul's enemy now suggests that it's beyond his reach, that he has sinned far too long in far too many different ways. He's sinned against so much light and against so much knowledge. How can he be saved? But the name of the Lord meets his eye. The name of the Lord. He spells out every letter and putting them together cries out, Who is a God like you? He runs to the Lord as to a strong tower. His burden of conscience is relieved. His soul is set free and he enjoys security. Think of the child of God who is feeble, distressed, and assaulted. What if I should return to the world, look back, give up my Christian faith, give way to my own deceitful heart, and perish in the end with aggravated condemnation? Perhaps you're walking outside the gates of the tower. No wonder your imprudence exposes you to the arrows of the wicked one. Call again the name of the Lord. Go back inside the walls. Run into the strong tower, the name of the Lord, for there is no higher education. Amen? Amen. And God, we trust You for Your truth. And God, we rely on You for Your compassion. And Father, in the world that we walk, we ask that You would balance us out. That we wouldn't swing to the far uh, extreme of legalism and and hatred and meanness and bitterness. And that we wouldn't swing to the other extreme of of namby-pamby love that's just accepting of every and anything and doesn't really concern itself with salvation. Father, may we walk like Jesus did, with love and compassion and truth and honesty. May we learn this balance so that we can speak truth into people's lives with love. Words of truth that will be received, Father, gracefully. I pray, Lord, for our students once again. Fill them up with the knowledge of the truth. Lord, assure them of Your absolute truth. So that wherever they go or wherever they walk, they will walk on the foundation Paul said was the only foundation, and that is Jesus Christ. And it is in Jesus' name this morning that we trust and we pray and we put our hope. Amen.